This is Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Glenn Kirshner is a lawyer and a former prosecutor in the U.S. Army who spent decades working in the U.S. court system. Last week, we talked to him about the ongoing January 6th investigation in the House, testimony by Ivanka Trump, activity within the Department of Justice to investigate wrongdoing by the Trumps as well as Hunter Biden, and honestly, about why Americans should care about the role an independent judiciary should play in any democracy. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Friday, featuring some of the world's leading experts in food and energy security from CSIS on how global events impact the food and energy supplies we depend on in our daily lives. Our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, led this interview, and when we started out, Justin was sharing his experiences serving on a grand jury in Washington, D.C. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. I'm listening to a bunch of D.C. federal grand jury testimony five days a week for five weeks oh, so at you're, a time. You're so you're serving on a federal grand jury in D.C.? Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that this is what you used to do, right? Yeah, I was in the grand jury early and often in my nearly 25 years with the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Not to get into it, but I'm just curious, how much of the job is actually presenting testimony, whether it be to a grand jury, to an actual courtroom, because that seems like pretty glamorous stuff, and how much of it is attention to detail, digging into the paperwork, doing stuff as a team behind the scenes? So the Department of Justice is kind of the main headquarters for all federal prosecution in the country and the territories. Then there are 94 U.S. attorney's offices. Those are the field offices where the actual cases get prosecuted. D.C. is the only U.S. attorney's office of the 94 that prosecutes not only all federal crimes, RICO crimes, significant white-collar prosecutions, but we also handled all local prosecutions because D.C., by its nature, is a federal city. They never had a district attorney's office. So the federal prosecutors do all of the federal prosecuting and all the local prosecuting. As a result, I would be trying RICO cases in federal court one year, and then I'd walk across the street to D.C. Superior Court, the local criminal court for the city of D.C., and I would try murder case after murder case after murder case. So my grand jury practice was somewhat unique among federal prosecutors because I was in both the local and the federal grand juries just indicting and trying cases constantly, as were the 30 homicide prosecutors that I supervised at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. So we lived in the grand jury and we lived in courtrooms, both federal and local in D.C. It's funny that you mentioned RICO because RICO is a famously or infamously widely misunderstood process. Can you tell us a little bit about what it means for those of us who sometimes get confused about RICO in the audience yeah, here? Yeah, it stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations. And, you know, in D.C., we have lots and lots of gangs, but they're largely street gangs, geography based. You know, I'm from 22nd Street, so I'm beefing with the guys from 21st Street. Those kind of gangs, those kind of street crews 
are not what really constitute a RICO organization or enterprise. You have to have some structure to it. Think of the mafia. I think that's the easiest example. It has structure. You have a, a mob boss. You have underbosses. You have the consigliere. You have the capos and the lieutenants and the wise guys. And it has structure. It has sort of designated roles that the different people in the organization play. You have to prove what's called a pattern of racketeering activity. If you're going to bring a RICO charge, that sounds way more complicated than it is because a pattern in the federal law means two crimes. And there's a whole series of statutory crimes that can serve as racketeering acts. But by and large, you know, think of a a corrupt corporation that has a corrupt CEO and a corrupt board of directors and corrupt supervisors and managers that could be subject to RICO prosecution just the way the mob can be. We are going to discuss first half Supreme Court, and then we're going to get into January 6th. So, Glenn, kind of to start us off can you walk us through the just the sheer significance of the fact that we, by the time this podcast is published, likely later this week, we will have the first black woman confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court in its 233-year history? Yeah, it's hugely consequential. We break a lot of barriers. We obviously broke a significant barrier when we elected President Barack Obama. And now we will have our first African-American Supreme Court justice. It is so important, not just symbolically. Now, let's state the obvious. She's imminently qualified. She will be a remarkable Supreme Court justice. Now, I think we all recognize that she won't sort of shift the ideological balance on the court. And it's sad that we always have to talk about the ideological balance on the court. That's just not the way it should be. But I'm not so naive to think that, you know, ideology doesn't drive where the justices fall out on various decisions. But, you know, I think now there will be For all future generations of African-American girls as they're growing up, they can plausibly be told, guess what? You can be anything you want to be, including a Supreme Court justice, including vice president of the United States. I raised five daughters and one son. I think my one son believes it when I say you can be anything you want to be, including president of the United States. I'm not so sure that resonates with my daughters because they say, oh, yeah, dad. You want to show me an example of a female president? Well, I am thrilled that we will now have a concrete example of an African-American female justice for all future generations to look up to, to emulate, and to to aspire to be like. Uh, Glenn, it's funny that you talked about having five daughters and one son. I suppose that my family is almost a mirror image of yours because I'm one of uh, five sons and one daughter on my side. Wow. But J- Judge Jackson, uh, she's not only a rare SCOTUS justice because of her family heritage and her gender, but also because of her experience with the law, uh, in particular, her experience as a public defender. So yeah. you uh, were a prosecutor and yeah. uh, you tried cases in front of judges from all different walks of life and career trajectories. And did you notice that having a judge who had been a former public defender made a big difference in the way that that judge approached a criminal prosecution. Did you find that that was an experience that shaped their perspective in the way that they approached the law? Yeah. 
you know, you can't really generalize. Uh, some former public defenders may made some of the absolute best judges that I appeared before. And I will say this may be counterintuitive for folks who aren't kind of immersed in the criminal justice system, but I teach criminal justice at George Washington University. And I always ask my students, if you had to blindly choose between a public defender, a paid lawyer, and a CJA lawyer, a court-appointed lawyer under the Criminal Justice Act, who would you choose? And public are the third choice. I try to school them by telling them, in D.C., if I were in trouble, I would want a public defender representing me because both the local and the federal public defenders in D.C., two different offices, are some of the best, fiercest, smartest advocates that I encountered in my 30 years in courtrooms. So, and they do double duty. The public defenders don't just represent their clients zealously, but they keep government abuse in check. They keep police misconduct in check. They keep prosecutorial overreach in check. You know, I was a prosecutor and, you know, I didn't have as many different responsibilities as defense attorneys had. Now, I will say that first and foremost, I always tried to school our prosecutors that I supervise that, you know, you are here to protect the rights of the defendant as well. You know, you don't zealously represent the defendant's interests, but you are going to protect the rights of the defendant by making sure everything you do, everything your law enforcement teams do, whether it's FBI, ATF, DEA, Metropolitan Police Department, the local cops in D.C., whether it's Park Police, Capitol Police, Marshal Service, you know, Secret Service, Uniform Division, and on and on and on. There are endless federal law enforcement agencies uh, postal in D.C. Inspectors. Postal inspectors, whom I love. I love the postal. We work the answer case a little bit with them. They're the ones who arrested Bannon right off of Guo's yacht. Yeah, the postal inspectors. I mean, we have Smithsonian police in Capitol. We have uh, Metro police. We have Amtrak police. It goes on and on. That, this could fill the hour, so I'll stop. But if you ever catch law enforcement officers engaged in misconduct, it's your job to not only exploit whatever evidence they give you, but to jump down on them with both feet and make sure they're held accountable. And I've referred for prosecution and prosecuted myself a number of police officers. So I like to think we do double duty. We protect the rights of the defendant. We protect the integrity of the system, but we are there to vindicate the rights of victims and to hold perpetrators accountable and to protect society. But public defenders in D.C., that is as good as it gets. Justice Jackson is going to replace Stephen Breyer. And I was wondering if you could compare the two's ideological approach to the law and whether or not Justice Jackson is going to substantially change the makeup of the court. I know it's 6-3, but do you know if she'll push the court left, right, or will she be a lot more similar to Stephen Breyer than maybe some on the right think? Yeah, I, I think she's likely to be similar, but I think more fundamentally, I heard one of my colleagues say, and it was a little deflating, that unless something changes drastically, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson will probably spend her career writing dissents. And that makes me sad, especially because of the lawyer that she is and the judge that she is. But we are where we are on the ideological split on the Supreme Court. If you had told me decades ago when I started the practice of law that we would find ourselves at a place where the Supreme Court is preparing to revoke, claw back the constitutional privacy rights of women, 
I would have said, you're crazy. If you had told me that the Supreme Court will allow states to deputize private citizens to deprive other private citizens of their constitutional rights that have been guaranteed for decades, I would have said, you're crazy. And yet here we are. And I don't think Judge Brown Jackson's confirmation is likely to change any of that, unfortunately. And because nobody seems to have the appetite to increase the number of Supreme Court justices, which makes so much sense for so many reasons, I think the Constitution is under attack and it's going to remain under attack for the foreseeable future. We've seen some pretty contentious confirmation hearings, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and then most recently with Justice Jackson. If the president and the party that controls the Senate are split, moving forward, is any type of Supreme Court nominee dead on arrival, in your opinion, regardless of what year it is for the president? Is the system broken? Yeah, the system is hopelessly broken. You know, I'm usually the optimist. The glass is generally half full, but, you know, you have to kind of squint and turn your head and look far off on the horizon to see the system improving significantly. And that includes the nominating and confirmation process. I'll never quite get over or understand how Merrick Garland never got his confirmation hearing. I will tell you that I will never run for office, but if I were making the rules or the decisions, I would have said, you know, look, Senator McConnell, you've waived your right to provide advice and consent. Merrick Garland, please don your robe and take your place on the Supreme Court. Then, yes, that's kind of revolutionary. And Well, guess what? That would have forced Mitch McConnell to go into court and defend his position, if he wanted to put a stop to it, defend his position that one man can stymie the entire political system by depriving a presidential nominee of an advice and consent hearing. That's insane. That's broken government. And it's government that for whatever reason, we don't seem to be willing to do the hard work to fix. So we've got a lot of work ahead of us. Glenn, the other topic that we wanted to get to today was about January 6th, but maybe um, a transitional question, if you will, a way to kind of make this bridge between the Supreme Court and January 6th is to note that the Supreme Court has already weighed in on the subject of January 6th in the previous ruling. So this was when Trump tried to sue to prevent the National Archives from handing over documents to investigative committees. And the Supreme Court ruled that the National Archives could go ahead and transfer these documents. So the Supreme Court has already weighed in on the subject of January 6th. Do you expect that this will happen again? Do you think that the Supreme Court's role in January 6th is already written? Or do you expect that there might be other topics that would come before the court at any point in the future, given your assessment of where these investigations are heading? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, If I had to bet a dollar of my own money, that's my betting limit. I'm not a high roller. I would bet that the Supreme Court might be largely done on the J6 front. I will say thank goodness for the judiciary because it held throughout the challenges to the presidential election, and it's a good thing that the court held. I think they're going to hold with respect to the attack on the Capitol, the insurrection. Of course, it remains to be seen what kind of charges might end up being brought by Merrick Garland's Department of Justice that might inspire new rounds of legal challenges that bubble their way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Look, the Supreme Court likes to assert itself. It likes to be a player. 
And so, you know, it may reach out and accept review of some J6 cases that have yet to be filed. But I think they're probably going to be largely hands off at this point. So another thing that we've seen with the Supreme Court and January 6th is Ginny Thomas and Clarence Thomas. How unusual is it for Supreme Court justices to not recuse themselves with similar conflicts? Is it a practice that is commonly observed where they do recuse themselves? Is it just up to them and it's a personal decision and they're not really following this norm of recusal? How should the general public understand his refusal to recuse? You know, Supreme Court justices are, in a sense, above the law, which I think qualifies as irony, since, in a sense, they set the law, or at least they interpret the law. But I think it's really corrosive to the perception, the public's confidence in the Supreme Court when you have a Supreme Court justice who is debating on whether to preside over a case involving, in part, whether his wife's texts that were inappropriate at best and incriminating at worst, whether those texts should be disclosed to the J6 committee and ultimately by extension to the American people or should be buried from public view. And the fact that any judge or Supreme Court justice decides it's appropriate to involve himself or herself in a case in which a spouse has a direct interest and direct involvement, that to me shows that things are broken. Of course, there's a separation of powers problem. Congress perhaps can't do much to install oversight or set any kind of rules or codes of conduct or ethics for the Supreme Court. But if Chief Justice Roberts doesn't take this deadly seriously and do something to both remedy this problem and deter future conduct where justices feel comfortable sitting in cases in which they have a direct conflict, not an appearance of conflict, which also has to be avoided and should result in a justice removing himself, but a direct conflict, then I think the legitimacy of the Supreme Court is is kind of an open question. You know, Glenn, I think that you really kind of put your finger on the nose there when you described the justices as being above the law, because, of course, there's no one above them. There's no higher Mm -hmm. legal authority. And I think that, of course, they have basic discretion to determine when or when they don't have a conflict. Right. But I think that we've seen evidence that, you know, the attitude of this court towards the issue of political corruption is concerning. Of course, infamously with the Citizens United decision, that was a 5-4 decision as we understand the ideological breakdown of the court. But then another one, which is talked about less, is the McDonald case, when the Supreme Court vacated the convictions of the governor of Virginia Mm -hmm. for bribery. And it's important to note here that this was a 9-0 ruling. This was all of the justices that were appointed by Republicans and all of the justices that were appointed by Democrats, who basically said, unless you've got a piece of paper that says, I agree to do this action in exchange for this bribe, then you can't prove a quid pro quo when you don't have bribery. This seems to speak to the milieu that they live in, their attitude about the way conflicts and corruption work. That's frankly just very concerning, isn't it? Well, sure, because it makes it feel like there really is two systems of justice, right? One for the rich, powerful, influential, connected folk who never seem to be charged with a crime, or if they are, 
well, look, the Supreme Court's got their back, and then one for the rest of us, right? Particularly the poor, the you know, disenfranchised, the minority. You know, it's just kind of like we don't really care. We're just going to go ahead and lock you up and throw away the key. And it's hard to argue with a straight face that there is only one system of justice. When you see what Alvin Bragg does, you see what happens as a result of crime after crime after crime being exposed having been committed by Donald Trump and we've got no accountability, not to mention, you know, something that will always stick in my craw. You have an OLC memo, an opinion from the Department of Justice saying a sitting president is above the law, can't prosecute him, even though there's no law, there's no statute, there's no precedent. And when we start to put criminal government officials above the law, beyond the reach of the law, it feels like, you know, we're sort of slouching toward banana republic land. The only people that could conceivably be prosecuted for political corruption, for public corruption, are public officials. And we're entrusting them to essentially police themselves, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. And there's one thing that we should have learned. It's that organizations generally can't police themselves. I think we should consider a standing independent counsel statute. Good luck getting it passed these days, I understand. And that it's a permanent office and it is staffed as independently in a nonpartisan fashion as it can be, it's kind of beyond the reach of political shenanigans from any of the branches of government. I think we are at that point. I know the feasibility of it is probably difficult, but if we don't take seriously putting mechanisms in place to deter misconduct crimes by high government officials, if we just keep letting it go the way it's been going, I think we're in trouble. So I wanted to get into the news, not only of the day, but of the week. Uh, We had some pretty big testimonies. I saw you on Peacock today describing Ivanka Trump, and we've heard because she testified virtually before the January 6th committee. And we've also heard about Jared Kushner reportedly being very helpful to the January 6th committee. What do you expect was the content of their testimony? And realistically, how helpful could the former president's daughter and son-in-law be to a committee investigating him for potentially conspiring with terrorists? I mean, they could be extraordinarily helpful if they're truthful and they have information that might incriminate their father or father-in-law. And it sure seems like Ivanka does because former Vice President Mike Pence's chief of staff, Keith Kellogg, reportedly told the J6 committee that Ivanka several times or multiple times pleaded with her father to condemn this violence, to put a stop to it, as did National Security, it was Mike Pence's National Security Advisor Kellogg, as did Mark Meadows, as did McEnany and some of the others, and he wouldn't do it. And what Kellogg said was, you know, we sent Ivanka back in a second time because she can actually be pretty persuasive when others can't, convincing her father to do something. And even after a second go-round with Ivanka pleading with her father to stop this attack on the Capitol, he refused. You know, there's so much that as a prosecutor I would make out of the testimony like that from a defendant's daughter who presumably would be in her father's corner. We know family dynamics are different in every instance. 
And I'm sure Donald Trump would, you know, make sure his attorneys went after Ivanka's credibility if she provided incriminating information about him. But that's powerfully, powerfully incriminating information if that's the way the testimony played out. And I'm going to give a tip of the hat to both Ivanka and Jared for testifying, running the risk of incriminating their father. Because look at the members of what I call the cover-up club. Steve Bannon, Roger Stone, Mark Meadows, Navarro, Scavino, Jeffrey Clark, and John Eastman, they decided that's a very small percentage of the people that the January 6th committee has interviewed or wanted to interview. That's the cover-up crew, whereas more than 800 witnesses have sat for interviews, either voluntarily or pursuant to a subpoena behind closed doors, and some of them downloaded information about Donald Trump for six and eight hours at a time. So I, for one, can't wait until the public hearings, when this is all sort of combed through and the best nuggets of information are presented to the American people. I will say that the lead investigative counsel for the January 6th committee, Tim Heafy. He and I started together at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. He's one of the best RICO prosecutors I think our city has ever had. And I can see the sort of fingerprints of a really experienced federal prosecutor, RICO prosecutor, all over the J6 investigation, the way they've been, who they've been subpoenaing, the way they've sequenced the subpoenas, the phone records and documents they've been seeking. I used to work in Congress. I think that the January 6th committee is vitally important, but I do want to get your opinion on it. So the January 6th committee, obviously important for fact-finding, obviously important for setting a historical record. There's the fact that the January 6th committee can't actually prosecute anybody. There are the time constraints where some people you've mentioned are just trying to run out the clock. Do we expect any legitimate, severe legal consequences to arise from the committee's work, or is it more historical record and public opinion stuff? Well, as we all know, the committee can also make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. Now, when Bill Barr was the attorney general, it felt like Bill Barr's Department of Justice was where criminal referrals went to die. The Senate Intel Committee referred a series of people for suspected false statements, uh, the kind of the formal term for perjury when you lie to Congress under oath. Don Jr. and I believe Jared Kushner and Eric Prince and Sam Clovis and Steve Bannon and, and nothing ever happened in Bill Barr's Department of Justice. But I think there will be a series of criminal referrals that will come from the findings of the J6 committee. And then that will, I'm going to use the term ratchet up the pressure on the Department of Justice. But I hasten to add that in my 30 years as a prosecutor, I didn't feel public pressure because we're not allowed to make prosecutorial decisions based on public pressure, only on the facts and the law. But certainly, I think the public's perception may change as a result of the J6 hearings. And if the Department of Justice doesn't start holding people accountable for their crimes, indicting them, I think we are also in a very dangerous spot. Because if all of this crime and corruption goes unaddressed, well, then you're just giving license to future corrupt politicians to do it all over again and then some. And my nightmare is that if Donald Trump is not prosecuted for any of his crimes, then in 2024, if he runs for president, he will have Merrick Garland as a shadow running mate because he'll say, look, 
it's proof that I didn't commit any crimes, because if I did, you can bet Merrick Garland would have indicted me. And I'm not a partisan person. People draw their own conclusions because of my, uh, you know, running my mouth on TV. But I grew up in an apolitical household. This is not about politics. This is about ethics in government and high government officials committing crimes against the United States and by extension against we the people. So this has to be addressed. And we've had some really good stories over the past week or 10 days that seems to signal that DOJ is expanding its criminal probe and hopefully is moving in the direction of indictments. Right after January 6th, the second impeachment trial, just to underline, this isn't a partisan issue. You had Mitch McConnell condemning the president. You had, I believe, 10 Republican senators vote to impeach. You had a lot of people on the Republican side. You have reports of Kevin McCarthy, spineless Kevin McCarthy. I used to work in the GOP with him in Congress, and the consensus was that he doesn't really have a spine because he doesn't stand up to people. You had him yelling at the former president to cut this stuff out during the insurrection. So this really was never a partisan issue right after the insurrection, and obviously it has turned into one because of the Republican Party. But I'm going to pass it over to John Gunnison to get into the DOJ a little deeper. Glenn, I have to say I was chuckling a little bit at how you described that Trump might use non-prosecution as evidence of innocence. It's imagine the world in which every white collar criminal was prosecuted. Anyone who was <laughs> guilty of a white collar crime was prosecuted. It's a very different world than the one that we live yeah. in. But certainly we're seeing a lot of impatience among the public in the way the DOJ have been approaching this. And so I think that it's worth kind of explaining especially from your perspective as an experienced prosecutor, the way that these investigations are conducted. So, of course, you're familiar with the way that this works in practice. Usually, the investigators will pursue the lower-level defendants first in hopes that they're going to flip, plead guilty, provide evidence, and then you pursue higher up the chain. And so that's very much the way that DOJ have been pursuing these cases so far, right? Do you think that they have now collected enough foot soldiers, so to speak, involved in January 6th, that they are indeed ready to start pursuing targets higher up the chain? Oh, yeah. I think they've been ready for quite some time. I agree with you that in the ordinary course of our practice, we're kind of slow and methodical and circumspect and plotting, and we want to triple cross every T and quadruple dot every I. That's when public safety is not at imminent risk. Okay. So when I was running covert investigations, I had to assess every day when I had probable cause. Once I reached that threshold to make an arrest and to indict someone, I had to ask myself the question daily, am I doing more harm than good by continuing to investigate covertly, proactively before I make any arrests? Is public safety at risk? Well, guess what? Public safety is at risk. Donald Trump is still out there telling people things like lay down your lives to fight against CRT, I believe endangering our nation's school teachers. So I understand, and I have to every day struggle to balance my frustration with the need for patience. I understand the insurrection is an enormous criminal undertaking. It's unprecedented, I think, in our nation's history, the nature of this conspiracy and this attack on the Capitol and our democracy. And so I am trying to preach patience and giving the Department of Justice as much time as it needs to do it right. The problem I have is I say all that against the backdrop of seeing a former president 
who has not been held accountable for any of the crimes prior to the insurrection, whether it was the campaign finance conspiracy he was in with Michael Cohen, for which Michael Cohen has already paid dearly, or the extortion and bribery of President Zelensky, or the as many as 10 counts of felony obstruction of justice documented by Bob Mueller in volume two of the Trump-Russia report, and on and on and on. So that's why I always have to bite down hard before I say, let's give DOJ all the time it needs. So there's a lot going on here. There are a lot of moving pieces. And I was thrilled at the reports that came out about a week ago that DOJ is expanding its criminal probe into the funders, the planners, and the organizers of the insurrection, that they're expanding their criminal probe into the fake electors and the Trump allies who were pushing the fake elector criminal scheme, because let's call it what it is. It's a criminal scheme to overturn the election's results. And then most importantly, in the Washington Post, there was a little nugget that said over the past two months, subpoenas have been used involving, quote, officials in former President Trump's orbit, close quote. And I just hope that we see some justice before it's all said and done. Well, Glenn, let's talk then about the importance of patience here. One party that we know must be patient for any appropriate relationship in the executive branch to exist is the president himself and the people in the White House. We understand that it's very inappropriate for the White House to be involved in prosecutions. This is part of why so many of us were so outraged by the conduct of Donald Trump and William Barr when they were tag teaming these prosecutions and micromanaging them to try to end the prosecution to Mike Flynn and so on. So far, the Biden administration seemed to have been approaching this the right way. We knew that during the debates and the campaign, when Biden was asked, should Trump be prosecuted? Would you make sure he'd be prosecuted? He said the right thing. He said, it's not up to me. It's up to my AG and the line prosecutors. We know that Biden picked an AG who he doesn't have a close personal relationship with to try to establish distance between the DOJ and the White House. And we've also seen how apparently the Biden White House has allowed the investigation into Joe Biden's son to continue without interference. So all of this looks very good. However, we saw a story in the New York Times this week that says Joe Biden has privately said that Donald Trump should be prosecuted over the Capitol riot. And of course, this leads us to question how the New York Times became aware that Biden was saying this. And in the worst case scenario, it's that Biden or that someone in the Biden White House have told the New York Times that this is what Biden thinks as a way of putting public pressure on the AG. Is this something that concerns you? What do you think is the story here? And does this suggest that maybe Biden isn't being as patient as he should be in regard to this matter of separation between the White House and the DOJ? Yeah, President Biden has a duty. He has a responsibility to the American people to protect us from people who are trying to destroy our democracy. So in a perfect world, I want the wall of separation between the Oval Office and the Department of Justice to be high and impenetrable. (sighs) However, you know, we have to look at the abuses of the Donald Trump bill bar days. And here's my overwhelming concern. I don't want to look back from the end of our democracy and see America's headstone read, well, at least the Dems followed norms and traditions. That's going to be cold comfort to us when we go the way of Russia. Yes, that sounds hyperbolic. So in a perfect world, I would like President Biden to be the king of circumspection. Guess what? We don't live in a perfect world. 
there comes a time for a street fight, an honest, honorable, ethical street fight, but a street fight. And I'm not feeling a lot of street fighters right now who are really battling for democracy with everything they've got, like using the lawful power of the inherent contempt of Congress to compel testimony, which the Supreme Court, albeit back in the 30s, says is a lawful vehicle. Because I have a feeling if the Republicans take the House, oh, we're going to see the inherent power of contempt wielded by Congress. But you have to fight as hard as you can while still fighting fair. But uh, I will forgive President Biden for stating an objective truth that Donald Trump should be prosecuted. So we're going to do three quick audience questions here. We'll start with John Pierre and then we'll go to Shanette. John, over to you. Thank you, Justin. Hi, Glenn. Thank you for doing this interview. During the 2020 presidential cycle, the Biden-Harris ticket was asked a lot about Supreme Court packing. And it was a question that they deflected, rightfully so. So there's been a commission set up, and they did release a report. There wasn't really any advocacy for any particular reforms, but of course, they sort of did an academic analysis of some of the arguments, which I think can be useful. But in this moment where you have a justice who is refusing to recuse, although his wife is arguably implicated in upcoming cases regarding January 6th, a moment where we have Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham saying, hey, if we control the Senate, you're not going to get any more Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Yeah. You've described a scenario where basically you would argue in court that Mitch McConnell has waived his advice and consent. Do you see this conversation about Supreme Court packing coming back into the forefront? Should that scenario play out where the Republicans take the Senate and, God forbid, something happens to one of the justices and they hold that seat, effectively changing the number of Supreme Court justices? What do you think will happen in that case? So I am at a loss, and I guess I wouldn't call it Supreme Court packing. I would call it sort of adjusting to the times. I mean, we've increased the number of federal judges over the years because of the increasing caseload, because of the increasing population in the United States. It's, I don't feel like it's packing. I mean, I, you know, we all know that we've had as few as five and as many as 10 Supreme Court justices over the history of our country. I think it's the right thing to do for lots and lots of reasons, you know, one of which feels political, but uh, I'm, I'm okay with that too. Um, so I don't know that it's going to become, I, I was a little bit deflated when President Biden's commission did not make that recommendation. So do I believe there's a likelihood we're going to get that conversation back on the table? Probably not. Um, but I, I think for lots of reasons, it should remain on the table and hopefully someday we'll catch up to the times and increase the number of Supreme Court justices. Nine is not a magic number. Um, and I think we've seen the downside of nine. I mean, for our constitution to mean one thing or another based on one justice going one way or another in the five, four split, of course, it's, you know, likely, not going to be 5-4 all that often as we move forward. But that that feels wrong to me. So, you know, that that's kind of my take on that. Thank you. 
Thank you very much, John Pierre. We will go uh, to Shanette, and then our last question of the night. We'll go to Aram. Thanks, John and Justin, and thanks for being here, Glenn. The one that honestly freaks me out more than anything else are the things around the election. Um, we've seen things like the Waldron deck that laid out how they were planning to overturn the results of the election. There's been no accountability around that. Um, and there's lots of actions that have been taken at a state level that really threaten how, um, you know, elections are decided, you know, where state legislatures potentially overturning things. But I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the state of affairs as it relates to how our elections are going to be run and what it means to have justice delayed when it comes to people who literally attacked our elections. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, the Waldron deck and the Eastman memo and the Jeffrey Clark letter to Georgia state election officials kind of feels like a hub and spoke conspiracy to me, but what do I know? Um, so yeah, I, I <laughs> something else to be concerned about, right? Our state legislate legislatures um, trying to nullify uh, voting rights in every way they can. I hope our judiciary remain strong and up to the task when it comes to all of these election challenge cases that will come. You know, the judiciary held fast when it was the challenge to the 2020 presidential election. Was it 64 of 65 victories for democracy? So I'm hoping that the judiciary remains strong. But, you know, we're dealing with the, at least for starters, the judiciary in the 50 states. There, It's uneven at best. So... <laughs> All I can say is I don't think there's any way to predict the impact. I am hopeful that we will get out in numbers too big to rig and that it will be a free and fair election regardless of who you choose to vote for. But, you know, I think we've seen an unprecedented attack on our elections in the states, and I don't think anybody knows how that will play out. And, you know, that's one where we have to keep fighting in every court and keep challenging these voter nullification laws, get out in enormous numbers. You know, they can say you can't, you know, you have to drive farther to drop it in a, a drop box and you can't give somebody water if they're standing in line, but they can't stop you from voting. And so hopefully the, the voters will win the day. So, Glenn, we've we've reached almost 2,000 people here for the live show. It'll be multiplied on replay and the podcast I'm wondering, what do you want to leave the live audience members with, the podcast audience members with, as your last thoughts? It could be about democracy, or it could be about anything that, that you want to discuss as, uh, you know, your brilliant legal mind, a former prosecutor. What do you want to leave us with, man? Justice is a team sport, and we all need to get in the game. Nobody can afford to sit on the sidelines if you care about the future of our country and the direction of our democracy. Justice at this point is not only a team sport, but it's a full contact sport. And no government official, no agency, no branch of government can voluntarily tie one hand behind its back and expect to win the fight for democracy. We have to fight with everything we have, lawfully, honestly, ethically, but it's a full contact sport. And I think that is where we are in this country. And if we go down without a fight, I, I don't think we're going to be happy with, with where we end up. That concludes today's conversation. Again, huge thanks to Glenn Kirshner, to our audience for their questions, and to you for being here. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. 
For information on how to join us and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Friday, featuring some of the world's leading experts in food and energy security from CSIS on how global events impact the food and energy supplies we depend on in our daily lives. This has been Politics Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. On behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders, we hope to see you and hear from you soon.